Okay, hello guys. So I'm Adriana, the one of the the president of the National Black Cooperative. And first, we're gonna start with our intro. So, how's everybody doing? And how are you guys currently visualizing justice this week? So what like what social justice issue are you like fixated on currently and trying to solve? Um, how you doing, Adriana? I am doing all right. I woke up with a bit of a stuffy nose. Um, so physically, you know, been better. Um, but mentally, pretty good. You know, started my new job and it's been going well and they let me work from home most of the time. So I'm doing all right. Um, and the one social justice issue that has been coming up, um, especially because I think I got sick because I wasn't layering up enough, is um, the homeless population here in Boston. Um, and, you know, kind of a housing justice kind of thing, because I take the T to work, um, which is the train system here in Boston, and I get like a little card that discounts the T for me, um, because my job a lot, like is nice enough to give me that. Um, but I started thinking the other day, I'm like, there's plenty of people who don't even have a job, you know, let alone have housing, and a program that would get them T passes, so they don't have to like, keep trying to jump the bear you know, could be really nice and helpful for people to get job interviews and whatnot. And, you know, just, I feel blessed that I have this opportunity because my job has been very nice to me, but, you know, I think there are plenty of other people who might use something like this, you know, or be benefited a lot more than I would personally. Um, and it's getting cold here in the Northeast. So just like housing and thinking about, you know, how people stay safe during the winter. So that's kind of what I've been visualizing recently. No, I appreciate that. I feel like that's definitely um, an illuminating, illuminating perspective, especially seeing like the how privilege is dealt out and like deservingness and who's able to have access to things. So that was definitely like a empowered point. Cassie or Sage, did you guys want to? do you guys want to go next? I'll go. Um, I don't know like the specific name for it, but I think like the social justice that I've been seeing that was an issue during this week is like the educational system so like basically I'm um at school like I'm seeing there's not that many substitutes anymore like people are just like quitting or just like they don't want to work anymore just kind of like alarming for me and then even like bus drivers like um like earlier earlier this week I literally my bus driver was sick I guess but I didn't know that and no one notified my family or anyone so we were just like you oh, know wow. for a bus so um the communication and stuff is just you know gone and like we didn't have no one to transport us to school so I think that's been a problem which needs to be fixed but it just seems like no one cares at this point but I'm doing really good so yeah <laughs> well I'm happy to hear that on the bright side for sure but that's like that's a lot the, the coordination of that just totally failed but I saw Cassie you're shaking your head you probably have I know you probably have something to add to that yeah, so like, I'm doing good, you know, just I think on the back end, because I'm an educator teacher, and on the back end, there's just, I, and, okay, and it's my opinion, I just, I just think there's just too much too soon. And I think that the mental health of the staff, like the teachers, the paraeducators, the admin, the support staff, like everyone is just shot because there's no, there's not enough subs. And then we try to get subs, but in time of like, meso pandemic of whatever we're in now it's just hard to get people to like 
stay to work because then like the classes are too big then there's not enough people to go around the behaviors have skyrocketed as from like the disparities from last year to this year and it's just too much between new curriculums and then there's transportation issues as well and then like it's hard to get the drivers and it's just there's like there's just i feel like a lot of layers of issues and some of it's things that the schools are trying really hard to fix and then others is just people are exhausted and then no one's stepping up to go into that because then like if you look at some of the reviews for things it's just like okay so it's like why is this a one or two star you know and then like how can you get people to like apply and then help be a part of the solution when like you know everyone's exasperated but I think like I'm doing a bit better because I've been able to find a better balance but it's very challenging because a lot of it is setting hard boundaries and and telling people that my when i say no i need time like i have to do a hard boundary and, and like and do that for the sake of myself so i can better educate others but at the same time like it's just there's just too much when when people put 20 things on your plate and they're like oh well we're about to put 10 more and they're like hey i need they need to offload and when you're asking for people to like help and like to offload and like there's no end there's just no end no definitely i can zach do you want to say something i mean i just empathize you know um because once again you know my job i'm doing marketing and um a lot of the people who worked here before i got here you know they were able to work from home and you know they could do a lot of the stuff in the office and some people still haven't come back um but with the schooling i mean teaching over zoom just, you know, I can imagine the hardships of trying to deal with like a full classroom and trying to get, you know, your schedules aligned. And then before you knew it, it's like you're just back in the classroom. And, you know, like you said, maybe too much too early. And I just, I really empathize. And it makes sense, like Sage was saying, why people aren't, you know, leaving the field, even though we need them more than ever at this point in time. And it just doesn't seem to be a news story right now. It doesn't seem to be something that people are talking about, which is really sad. So I'm glad y'all brought that up. Yes, I totally agree with that. Like, I do um, empathize as well as like, just like within this COVID era with everybody, like, I feel like everybody has kind of like come to the point where if you're not going to like respect me and really like enable me and empower me in my job position, like I can find and do other things. And I feel like it more now more than ever, people are in the power to do that. And I'm like, I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's time that we really start holding like these institutions and stuff accountable for how they treat like us. Cause that's like, like you said, you have to be able to protect your energy and protect your peace or else you're not going to be able to pour into other people in that way. So I really appreciate you guys bringing that up. Like it's yeah. a very, very valid. Just discussion. as one last uh, quick note, I, I think something that is a news story and maybe not for teachers, but there have been strikes all over the place. Um, and we're seeing that and um you know, anywhere from here in Boston, the, uh, the the Museum of Fine Arts, they went on strike literally today um, because, you know, their director has been getting an uh, annual raise each and every year and the staff itself has not been, you know, and that's a museum, right? It's not necessarily the most vital part of the community, but it's, it's happening. There are more and more workers are saying, you know what, we, we can't put up with this, you know, wages are stagnating, but the price of living has continued to go up and we're not going to take it anymore. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the coming months. 
Yeah, and just to add, that's called the great resignation. This can be seen around the world, like economically. It's not just, I think, Americans, but it's a global phenomenon where people are just realizing that I am more valuable. I am worth more time and energy, and I know my skill set. So if anything, we're taking a lot of the silver linings that we learned from 2020, turning it into a new vision, and then really like creating gold for ourselves this year, or starting to forge that path of like, what will it look like to be able to, to actually live a life that you're proud of, um, without burning yourself out. I think people are just tired of the burnout, especially after last year and this year and all the new challenges to come because life has so much to offer. Um, but I'm sure we're going to talk about burnout and stressors within some of our topics today as well. But that's just like an ongoing theme across everything that we're talking about as well. No, I definitely agree. Snaps to that, like for sure. And I think for me, of this week, I think a social justice issue that I've kind of been grappling with is like, um racism and automation so like like all the things in internet and online and like shadow banning and like how that disproportionately affects like black creators specifically black creators that are talking about like the black experience and racism in like a really critical way and like just how the algorithms and the, this social um community that we've created online how that's kind of been perpetuated and how thinking about like even like the origins of a lot of these sites we talk about Facebook. I remember hearing that like when they were first created, like on the college campus, there was already like a racist tinge to it. To like the the black women on on campus uh, were being discriminated against on the platform, and just see how like years later how that's kind of like um, perpetuated and become bigger. So just thinking about that and like how and what ways we can combat that, just like really doubling down on like how racism is so embedded that it can even like something that you think you know, it would just be like operate as can be or just something you find essential, even that has been infected. So yeah, that's something I've currently been thinking about. Um, I've been pretty, um, mentally, I've been pretty in a good space, like a lot of um, getting back to old habits and stuff. But yeah, so that is that. And then on to the next topic. So today, we are, oh, the next segment is going to be Zach. So today we're going to be talking about um, Haitian refugees at the U.S. border. Um, and for the next segment, we're going to do the song of the podcast. And Zach, you can take it away from there. Yeah. Um, essentially, we thought it would be an interesting uh, challenge to try and find a song that relates to our topic um, because we end up talking about pretty heavy stuff on this podcast. And so, you know, maybe something to ease it in and make it not such a direct jump from our lives into these heavy topics. So the song that I picked today um, is The Beast by the Fugees. Um, and it's off of the 1996 project, The Score, which is a huge album. If you haven't heard of the Fugees, you should definitely go check them out. Um, but the reason that that was picked today is because one of the members of the Fugees is Wyclef Jean. And Wyclef Jean is maybe one of the most famous Haitian-American artists. Well, he's Haitian, but he grew up in New York. And um, the song, The Beast, actually talks about police brutality. Um, and, this, and, you know, there's a couple of verses that go in and out with the different members of the Fugees. But this was made in 1996 talking about all of the discrimination that Black individuals are facing in this country back then. And um, it actually is very relevant now. Um, it's really interesting. The song kind of makes me think about 
how long this struggle has been going on. I was born in 1998. Um, so this song dates me and it or predates me. And it's like, if you listen to it, which I recommend everyone does, it, it's kind of, I don't know, disconcerting how like the, the themes of that song very much are still represented in today's society. Even with all the you know progress that we've made, um, the amount of protests that have gone on, um, it's still relevant. And I think you see a lot of that with the music of the late 90s, like hip hop music. Um, and, you know, that genre is, you know, directly related to the inner cities. A lot of the artists come from the inner city and a lot of them tend to be black Americans. And so um, when you look at that song and you look at all the things they talk about and the frustrations that are built up, you know, fast forward till now, um, some some 20 plus years later, and it's like we're facing the same problems. And, um, you know, that can be really frustrating to think about. Um, and music is a great way. That's it's something like I, I look at it as like a time capsule. Um, so you can, you know, you're literally taking someone's thoughts and you're preserving them for later. Uh, and to listen to that song, you know, there's other songs on the album that also speak to this, but I think the beast in particular really gives everyone's opinions on police brutality and what was going on and the rallying cry to like make change and have, you know, things be different. Um, and, you know, we're here we are 2021 uh, after last year we've seen that police brutality is still very much a problem in this country and um so yeah and you know the incorporation here is we'll talk about we're going to be talking about haitian refugees later um and you know wyclef jean being haitian himself um has gotten involved you know back when there was that earthquake which we'll get into talking about a bit later um, but him being Haitian and the relation of this song to police brutality and what we've seen at the border is why we picked this song this week. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. And I remember seeing we we found out the um the last minute. We were like, oh my gosh, that was like the perfect choice. So we really appreciate um Yeah, that. you know, it's just it's a it's a fun little segment. I'm excited to do some more of these. So yes, yeah. we're excited to have you do them for sure. That was that was an awesome pick for sure. Um and to continue and to start getting to our topic about Haitian refugees at the U.S. border, so today we will be we will be beginning a new series called Joe Biden and Down Ballot Accountability. Seeing that Black and Brown people are a major reason for Joe Biden's presidency in the Democratic wave in 2020. We believe that it's time to check back and assess what they have been able to achieve and the things that we're still owed. Um, just a disclaimer, do not fear, even as we even though as we begin our focus on political accountability, we will still continue to cover a variety of topics that center black the black experience from black joy, current topics, music, sports, academia, and the like via a health justice lens. But as the but we will also occasionally highlight civic promises and issues we believe our elected officials need to act on or, or, or have already have um, and create discourse around them. So by continuing our ethos of visualizing justice via health justice lens, we will interrogate how we can achieve a more just and humane society than the one we live. So a quick outlook for this podcast, we'll be talking about immigration, refugees, and asylum seekers via the 
um, the the incident of Haitian refugees at the border and the handling by the U.S. government. We'll talk about racism, optics, and the process of asylum. So quickly, I think there's some important things to talk about is the difference between asylum seekers, refugees, and migrants, right? So when we want to with, when we use certain term, terminology, it's important to um, pick our words carefully in order to get the meaning that we want. So a lot of times we see like people calling these the Haitian refugees at the border migrants. And I think that takes away from the, takes away the context of the situation in which they were in, which got them there. So right, so asylum seekers are, is a person who has left their home country as a political refuge and is seeking asylum in another country. And there's two types of asylum seekers. There's affirmative asylum and defensive asylum. Um, affirmative asylum is a process, a process in which asylum seekers in the U.S. Voluntary, present, voluntarily present themselves to the U.S. Gov government to ask for asylum. Um, the affirmative application of asylum is made to the asylum office of Citizenship and Immigration Services, the division of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Defensive asylum refers to the process in which asylum seekers who are in removal proceedings before the EOIR of the Department of Justice submit an application for asylum. A refugee is a person who has been forced to leave their country in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. Um, refugees and as asylum seekers are persons who are sought residence in the United States in order to avoid persecution in their home in their country of or origin. Persons granted refugee status applied for admission while outside of the U.S. Persons granted asylum applied either at the port of entry or at some port after their entry into the U.S. Um, so I think those are just important distinctions to make. And a migrant is a person who moves from a place to another place, especially in, in order to find work or better living conditions. So it's important to make this distinction between migrants and refugees because there's certain legal um, statuses and privileges that being a refugee and asylum seeker that a mi being a migrant does not grant you. And in this particular case, the Haitian immigrants were fleeing multiple both political disaster, natural disaster, and the like. And they weren't simply just coming to find work, but they're also leaving because they have imminent danger um, in their home country. So I think it's just important to make that differentiation. And then onto the Black immigrant population in the US. Um, according to the, in 2014, the American Community Survey um, said that there is 3.7 million Black non-citizens that live in the U.S. This is fourfold increase um, when compared to the number of Black immigrants who lived in the U.S. in the 1980s, um, and a 54% increase from 2000. Um, it's also important to talk about how the Federal Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, aka the Harcella Act, drastically changed the demographics of the country. Um, this act replaced the national origin quotas intended in large part to ensure the Euro-American majority. Um, and it replaced it with the goal to attract skilled labor and reunite families. And an unintended, unintended consequence of this is that it diversified the country drastic, drastically, changing the um, demographics of America and leading to the rising black and brown majority that we see today. Um, according to the Black Alliance for Justice and Immigration. Um, Jamaica was a top country of orig origin in 2014, was 66, 665,000 
Black immigrants in the United States and accounted for 18% of the total population. And then Haiti being the second on the list um, accounted for 16% of the US Black immigrant population. Although half of the Black immigrants are from the Caribbean alone, African immigrants also drove much of the recent growth in Black, the Black immigrant population, making up 39% of the total foreign-born Black population in the US in 2014. So going off of this, what power is there in being able to limit the ability of certain people to um, move between borders? And this is to the group. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll add in. Thank you, Adriana. That was a really good summary of like, I think good to lay the groundwork about what we're talking about. Um, and to really, you know, give everyone the right terminology and some good statistics to go off of before we just dive in. Um, I think the power of being able to limit the movement of people is, you know, it's it's one of the most ultimate powers, I think, personally, because if you stop certain people from coming into your country, you, you state, you know, maybe not directly, but indirectly that the, the, our country, America, is not these people. You know, um, you're excluding them from everything that this country has, everything that this country will provide. Um, and it sends a very clear message. Um, and I think, you know, maybe it's slightly outside of the border issue. We see that with like redlining in America in general. Um, America is a country that has a terrible history of excluding people from certain areas. Um, and it's a racist history. And it's one that has continued to affect how we do business today. Um, we've seen this even more so, I think, since 9-11, um, you know, with Homeland Security getting, you know, much bigger than it was ever intended to be. Um, and we see it constantly at the border. And we see it with this refugee crisis that has continued to go on and it's basically saying we don't want to have to deal with you. We don't want to even know about you. We don't care either. And so we're just going to turn you away without giving you a chance. And these are people, once again, they're refugees. They're fleeing from something, um, which we'll get into later. But the country of Haiti is one that is extremely unstable right now. Um, and it's been that way for a couple of years, more than a couple of years, actually. And for the United States to treat those people in this manner, and we've seen it on the news, you know, you know, the, the image of the border patrol officer on the horse, you know, made the rounds because there's no, there's no good way to spin that no matter how hard you try. Um, that image, you know, clearly made the rounds because it, it's, it seems like something that shouldn't happen in this era, you know, it's inhumane. And um, we'll get a little bit more into Joe Biden's response to it, but even he had to condemn that particular action because it was just too explicit of a terrible thing, you know? I'm gonna let everyone else add in their two cents. I'll hop in next. So I think that like, and thank you Adriana for sharing all the information and terms. I think it's just um, a lot of the power has to do with um, what's called like a borderland theory. It's like, it's, it's that social power and dominance that continues the whole dichotomy of us versus them 
who should be included, who should be excluded. So when you have power over the border, it's just you, you can not only visibly, physically see it, but you can also experience it socially. And I'll speak from personal experience as well, where I got to visit the Mexico border on a mission trip, or I shouldn't say a mission trip, but it was more of a service trip. And on the service trip, we when we visited the border on our side, there was no one, it was littered with just trash and everything. And there were a lot of um, police there to like, you know, make sure no one swam around. And to, to give an idea, the wall was went out at least a couple yards into the ocean so like when you saw the wall you could drive up and see it for a couple miles but the wall went out into the ocean and there were guards there 24 7 to make sure no one went to swim around it and then on the other side it looked like people were having a party and having a good time but it just kind of shows you the power of of the wall it really shows how like there's this whole cultural divide this physical divide this us versus them and like it's just it's really sad to see how it not only physically divides us, but kind of ideologically and mentally it can start to divide people over time. So it can be a, a tool of protection per se, but in, it, but again, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like a pencil or a pen or other tools that we use. It depends on how you use it. It can be used to educate and protect and help others, but it can also be used to harm and promote different notions. So. It's just kind of complicated, but those are my thoughts on it. Yeah, I agree, Cassie. Like, <clears throat> it's just like, um, you guys know, yes, you do, <laughs> apartheid. That's what I um, start thinking about when you, like, describe the wall. It's just like in Africa, it's like the same thing. It's that separation, right? And this has been going on since, like, the 18, you know, 71, like, the, that time. And, like, they're just trying to keep us separated and, like, um it's just very sad because it's um it's not like they're really trying to understand like who these people are like who these Haitian people are in their story right it's just like oh you stay on that side I want nothing to do with you right rather than letting them over and you know you know trying to make a community or like try to like help them out so I think that's my two cents but I just think it's very absurd and it's just very dumb and I don't know how we can change it, but it's just. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you, Sage. And I would just like to add real quick that, you know, not only is it terrible, but it's incredibly hypocritical because America is a country completely built upon immigration, almost to a fault. We got rid of the people who are already here and made a new country out of it. And for our government to say, no, nope, we're good. Um, we're no longer accepting people is absolutely ridiculous. If you ask me, it's completely hypocritical and it shouldn't be what this country stands for, especially because we make such a big deal about it. Um, and we let people from other countries in all the time, no questions asked, but whenever it's that Southern border, there's always an issue. And, you know, no, I definitely agree. And I think, I think to get to the root of like, why we like borders matter so much to the United States, it's like, all again it's like rooted back into like colonialism and the, the enabling of like being able to dictate who can come and who can go and who is considered a part of our nation who is like because you don't hear like when different crises are happening in European countries or not you don't hear anything about um you would never think that there there's immigrants from like white European countries because to be white is to be like the default population of this country is the, the it was the standard of what was wanted 
from the beginning, right? So like if people like that's not a thing. But the only time you really hear like this, like it's a crisis at the border or there is like this issue is when it's black and brown people that are seeking to become to come into this nation. And usually the reason why they're coming into this nation is because America has gone and destabilized their countries with their colonistic, imperialistic ways, taking their resources, um, taking out their their different governments and implanting other people and then acting like they don't know what happened. When in actuality, most of the reason like talk about even like from Mexico talking about how like the corn situation and how they cheapen the price of corn in America so that all the people that needed to migrate needed to come here to get jobs. So and even thinking about Haiti and how we were the ones that followed through on the it's the French right like um Napoleon's his tax billion dollars because once Haiti like revolted so like it, it it empowers America right to be able to dictate who is you know allowed to be American who is not because that way they don't have to deal with the problems that they have perpetuated in other countries and they can continue to maintain power. Um, and I think like, that's a problem. Yeah. 100%. We're not willing to deal with the consequences of our foreign policy. Um, because even though we started out as a colony, we are very clearly an imperialist nation. Um, like you said, we're going and we're taking resources. We're going to other countries, um, you know, back in the day to stop communism was a big excuse. And now after destabilizing all of these regions, the refugees of those countries come to our borders and we turn them away. We're not willing to do anything about it. Yeah, it's like really sad because like, like I'm, I'm actually, I just searched it up, like bbc.com. Um, like they're showing this picture of like these kids, like on shoulders of their fathers and like walking through these trenches, like, like, like the waters. It's just sad to see. And the thing is, like you said, it's very hypocritical. Like we're very hypocritical to do this to these people because like we portray ourselves as like this welcoming country um we accept all these people and then you just push these people away it just doesn't add up you know so it's just like you know make a decision because you know so Mm -hmm. and speaking of treatment and and like it's how we also like treat one another and educating ourselves because most people like who's even paying attention unless it's like on social media unless it's like commodified to like get your attention somehow and feed into our capitalistic system. So it's kind of interesting because then like when you're talking, Zach, about accountability, I mean, that's one of our number one issues in our country, like across the board, across all these different like subjects. It's just how can we hold one another accountable and who's the accountability, like like who does the accountability impact and why, and then how does that enable all this to continue happening? Because we've had been having immigration issues ever since we came, came here way back when and then like how has have we been socialized from the 1700s and 1800s we have a like a fascinating history from the irish americans who came from a famine we have like lots of the people who um, immigrated from china and japan from world war ii from the um, jewish people who immigrated from the indigenous people from canadian lands that we like never talk about even though it's native american indigenous people's month in november just shout out to that like how how do we not hold another hold one another accountable in educating on our history to then move forward? You know, just like multi-layers. You're so right. And you know what? I think that's the perfect comment to move on to the next section because let's let's talk about accountability. Let's do it. Um, I did some research for this episode and it 
mainly focused on Joe Biden and his administration and what promises he made in order to get elected. Because as Adriana correctly stated, uh, black and brown people played a big part in electing Joe Biden. And they believed, or at least somewhat believed, in what he was saying was true and that he would uphold his promises in a variety of subjects, to be fair. But let's, let's take a quick look at um, immigration policy. So first and foremost, um, Joe Biden said that he would not hold immigrant or migrant children in detention centers if he was elected president. That has been flat out false. That is not true. We have continued to do so. Um, I honestly, looking into it, you know, I, I, I'm not very optimistic when it comes to, you know, big name politicians. I tend to be pretty pessimistic about it. But the amount of like contradictions and, you know, you know, wiggling around words that they do, like when they did the, um, the checks, you know, for COVID and saying, oh, they're not $2,000 checks because you already got this amount of money. That kind of just political like snaking has never sat right with me. But I didn't expect to find as much of, you know, just the complete, you know, said one thing, didn't follow through um, in his agenda. And so, in fact, even more holding facilities were opened under Biden's administration for a variety of reasons. I mean, obviously there's a COVID pandemic, um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. You know, the kids in cages thing, the whole phenomenon while Trump was in office. And by the way, let's, you know, some of, some of those facilities were opened under Obama as well. So let's not, you know, completely put that on Trump, but he didn't do a great job of cleaning it up either. In fact, he made it much worse. Um, so the number of kids in custody technically have been reduced. Um, some were sent to, you know, be taken care of by their parents because there was that whole situation where they were separating kids from their parents. So certain remedies have been made in that, in that sense. Um, but they've also been moved to facilities that aren't on the border kind of an out of sight, out of mind situation, because we know a big issue and why there's such a buildup at the border is because the processing and the paperwork it takes to become someone who can stay in this country legally can take years even. Um, and for a lot of these people who may not speak English or you know may not have the education to go through all the rigorous legal documents um, that are needed, uh, yeah, of course it can take years. And so they're going to house these people somewhere. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's not it's not humanely. Um, and so it's one of those things where, OK, maybe they're not being housed at the border anymore. So border facility numbers have gone down, but these people have to go somewhere. And how are they being treated in those locations? Um, so anyway, the next thing I want to talk about is Biden's promise. And I'm going to quote it here. I will take divisive steps to renew our core values and set our annual refugee admissions at 125,000 and seek to raise it over time. That's a direct quote. And in February of this year, Biden then said he would raise the cap to 62,500 refugees during this fiscal year. But then he announced April 16th that he would just keep in place the Trump era cap of 15,000 refugees. So once again, just walking back on promises that you know he made, and he made those promises to get elected, um, and it's completely hypocritical. It's it's ridiculous. It's one of the, it. My you know, I'm sure a lot of us were raised by parents who believe in honesty and believe in 
standing up for what you believe in and not, you know, lying <laughs> straight up. And it's just, it really, it really does get me riled up because a lot of, you know, the Democratic Party are telling you, you can't vote for Trump. They demonize Trump and maybe rightfully so. Maybe they have every right to demonize that guy. Um, but then once they get elected while demonizing the Republicans, and then in certain cases, they do the exact same thing as what was done. Um, we see certain neoliberal media outlets just not say anything, turn a blind eye to it. Um, we see a lot of the politicians who are demonizing Trump for doing the same thing, not say anything about Biden's administration, and they just let it slide. And it's one of those situations where you're like, well, why would they lie? Why would they just completely turn around on all their promises that got them elected? And you look at the political division in this country and you say, well, even if Biden lied, most people are going to say, well, what am I going to do? Vote for Trump? I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You know, he's a terrible person. And so you really have no option. And, you know, that gets into a much deeper problem in this country with, you know, political division and the two party system and not having enough valid options in power and have money behind those other options because we have third parties, but nobody respects those parties and they don't have the proper backing and funding to even have a chance at making waves in Congress. And so you get all these promises that were made by Biden on the campaign trail that get completely overlooked and walked back. Um, and so after significant criticism, the White House um, and Biden's administration announced a new cap um, in May that would likely increase the number of refugees that are admitted. Um, so back to the 62,000 number, which once again is far short of his campaign promise of 125,000. Um, but it's unlikely that they're even going to meet that goal by the end of this year. Um, and it's, it's ridiculous. It's despicable. And, you know, these aren't the only campaign promises that he has walked back on. This is just the one that pertains to this conversation. Um, and it's just, you know, it's sad, it's enraging. And it's, it's one of those things where you look at, you know, the state of the country and you wonder how, how we fix this situation. Um, to be completely honest, I don't really know. Um, but for politicians to just completely flat out lie constantly, this happens all the time. Once again, I, you know, you, you vote Democrat, you vote Republican, so be it. But a lot of this back and forth, you know, flip-flopping just happens. There are very few people in Congress that I believe are completely trustworthy because at a certain level, politics becomes a money game and it becomes something that, you know, big corporations get to influence. Um, and so one last tidbit, because I've been going on a little bit, um, I read an article the other day um, about Ted Cruz, who, you know, personally, not a fan of, full disclosure, don't like Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz comes out, and I just couldn't believe he was saying, he was like, what, what are we going to do about the, the Biden cages that are on the border? How can we possibly treat these people this way? Um, I can't believe Biden is doing this. This is inhumane, blah, 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 blah. We need reform. This administration has to be held responsible. And once again, it's like, where was Cruz last year when Trump was doing the exact same thing? Um, you know what I mean? It's, it's like <laughs> spineless. It's, it's spineless and it's was in Cancun, exactly. that you can't was. even, you know, you could just, you could say nothing. And it would be better than like flip-flopping. And the problem is, I agree with Ted Cruz. 
<laughs> yeah, what are we going to do about these people in cages? Something needs to be done. But the fact that, you know, someone like Ted Cruz, who has been, you know, very unhelpful when it comes to anything related to the border, um, is making these points, it's hilarious almost. It's almost laughable. So um, that's our quick, you know, my quick rant on the Biden administration and their accountability. So I completely agree with that. And just kind of building off of what you said and what Cassie said, I think like the idea of like, why do we, like, why are we enraged or mad about this and talking to like the greater public and specifically like the politicians that have the power to change it? Do we care because of the optics, because it looks bad, because like it look, makes us look horrible? Or do we care because we actually want to try to make change to your point is like, they continue to play in our faces and tell us that like, tell us it's raining when they really like peeing on us and it's like not okay. So to continue that and to kind of go deeper into the specific case of the Haitian refugees at the border. So on September 19th of 2021, more than 14,000 Haitians camped out underneath the Del Rio Bridge um, and were dehumanized by border patrol officers that proceeded to use their horse reins to whip the Black, the black immigrants slash asylum seekers and refugees to deter them from crossing into Texas. Um, this was a Trump era policy that continued into the Biden pres presidency, and he chose not he chose to overlook and do nothing about it. Um, I think it's important to state that when we think about Biden's promises, Biden's promises to like hold migrant children to stop holding migrant children in detention centers to reduce the number of kids in custody and also increase refugee refugee caps, this would have could have directly impacted the situation that happened at the border with the Haitian refugees, enabling more Haitian refugees to be come into the country to seek their asylum, um, not being inhumane, look, maybe looking back at the other, the other policies that Trump instituted, specifically this one that allows border patrol to pretty much act, to act analogous to like the slave patrols and whip migrants as they cross the border with their horse reins. So if he actually held true to any of these promises in, in the least of bit, or at least a sentiment of such, we could have potentially saw like a drastic change in then what, what occurred. Um, I think it's also important to note that this is via Vox, that there's a long history since the 1970s of denying Haitian refugees at the border um, since the 1970s. And I think it is important to talk about, like think about how Lee Atwater and the Republican strategy of 1981, an idea to make racism more extract when it comes to policy. So you don't necessarily have to say the N word or something like that, but you link the different abstract ideas that enable it to make it harder for black people, black and brown people to progress in this country. And then thinking about racialization and racialization of Haitian migrants. So um, very much so in this country, we cast Haitian migrants as disease, poor, unskilled and criminals, which is a false na narrative created by Amer uh, America and has, has been perpetuated for years. Um, as a reason to justify like immigration policies against them. And thinking, thinking about the current state of Haitian refugees, there was just, there, not, not, not mentioning the, the um, earthquake that happened some years ago now, but just this, this past summer, there's a 7.2 magnitude earthquake that happened in Haiti. Um, in 2010, there was an earthquake that was never fully recovered from. And then in July, the president, um, Louise was assassinated. So the country is in dire straits at this point. Um, highly destabilized and needs a lot of repair. So there's there's multiple reasons why people would need to flee to find a place that is um, to enable them to live a fulfilling life without having to deal with the stressors and the different things that are happening now in Haiti. So there's more than enough reason to be able to grant somebody asylum if they say that they're fleeing 
I mean, it's it's common knowledge at this point. So thinking about these promises and um, the context of the Haitian refugee refugees at the border, um, how do we think racism is at play here? Like what structures and systems do we believe are implicated and um, historical or political elements that are at play? No, it's a tough, uh, a tough question. Um, how is racism at play here? I mean, it's one of those things where do I think every border patrol officer is racist? Like maybe not, but it's one of those situations where the the system has been racist, and thereby people participating in the system are carrying out racist acts. Um, and I think we talked about this a little before, but for some reason, you know, black and brown people are just treated differently in most aspects of life when dealing with the American government. And that, you know, doesn't change when they're trying to cross the border. Um, and so how is racism at play here? Well, it's at play in the policy. It's, it's at play in are the precedent we've set. Um, you know, these policies have been handed from president to president, as we've seen, and it just seems easier, Republican or Democrat, to just continue doing what we've been doing. Because once again, if if the votes were going to be at risk, if the support was going to be at risk, maybe something would be done. But we've seen that it's not that way. The political division in this country is so strong that, you know, the other side is seen as so evil and demonized so much that regardless of what happens during a presidency, the majority of people are going to continue voting for the party they voted for. And that's a, that's a problem. That's a really big problem. And um, it's one that we have to work to, to address, but it's, it's, you know, it's a where do you start kind of issue. Yeah, for sure. And I also think about like, because I visited the Dominican Republic. And when I talked with a lot of the people, the politicians there, um, a lot of them, even just the way I mean, because you know, the Dominican Republic and Haiti have a very complex relationship. And it's all rooted in colonialism, colorism, because you know, it, the, the whole concept, the conceptualization of like identity there is fascinating to me, because a lot of them are like, oh, well, like, my homeland, when I, when I talk to people from the DR, uh, they're like, oh, my homeland is Spain. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like, then they'll tell me all about the Spaniard history and like all the stuff from like, you know, all these times. But then when I talk to more of the Haitian people, there's like this very divisive thing where some of them are like, oh, no, I'm from like this nation in Africa, or I'm, I'm more of like, I'm more Dominican, not Haitian. How could you confuse me? So kind of like what everyone was saying, it's just like, it's just this almost like a system of like, if, if you're lighter, but you still are, are, are like, you can tell that you're mixed with something, people treat you one way, and you have social, social capital, cultural capital, and sometimes economic capital, like just based off the way you look, people will give you more, um, you know, based off of that. So I think it's really interesting, because racism, I feel like almost runs the market there. And I hate saying that, but to speak from personal experience, again, like just when I visited there, they would treat the person who was blonde haired, blue eyed one day, and they called her Rubio saying, oh, well, she's like this precious, like 
thing and that's like the idea and then the rest of us weren't allowed in at one point because we weren't we weren't like that and especially like you know when when they started to kind of raid us it's like a lot of the a lot of us who are either mixed or darker they were just like oh yeah like you're just one of us so you're, you're not nothing special so it's just really interesting to see structurally it impacts the way that people socialize one another the way that like people either buy in or lean out from the biases that they have so that's just what i've seen and i've also heard a lot of my friends have similar sentiments and even people who are from the countries uh talk about how like it's just so rampant like racism and colorism to the point where it's just that's what that's where the money's at it's all intertwined in the same story yeah i agree and when i think about this um it's like they're like like you said they're categorizing categorizing us right and it's like they know this is an issue right everyone knows this is an issue but they just still like you they take their time to solve it that's how i view it right they take their time to solve this issue and the races like the colorism you're saying the racism um it's just like I think we discussed last week, Cassie, like the paper bag, the brown paper bag. It's just like that, right? If they see you darker than this paper bag, like it's just, you're kind of like nobody, to be honest, right? If you're, you're mixed, you're Mexican, you're kind of like nobody. Um, so they favor these, you know, people that are lighter skinned, white, blue eyed, blonde hair, same thing. And these people that are actually like need the government's help, need like this help, they don't take their time to help these people and it's just like okay you know so yeah yeah i agree and building off like what everybody says particularly like the colorism point too i think it's important because like there's i think it's important to kind of even identify that when you think about like when we see brown people at the u.s border so like mexican people and people like their treatment of at the border was horrendous too right but i also don't believe i saw people like whipping them at the border either so it's just like I think that it just, it's kind of weird. Like it's very eye-opening to see how all that kind of comes to fruition and how we're able to like dehumanize people so easily at like the drop of a dime. And I think kind of going to that point, I remember like last year, there was a video circling on Instagram talking about like black immigrants at the border. And I went and looked up like the article that they had and it was particularly talking about Haitian immigrants. And I think a lot of times we don't, we're not socialized to think of black people as immigrants, which is weird even for me seeing that my mom is a black immigrant herself. But like, I don't feel like, I don't know if you guys agree with me on that, but like, I don't feel like when you think about immigrants, you don't think of black people as being immigrants. But um, when you look at the numbers and stuff, we're some of the highest immigrant populations. And specifically when you talk about who is detained more often and things like that. So I'm gonna read up a couple of stats. So Haitian immigrants and family detention. During COVID-19 family detention, Haitian immigrants made up 44% um of detentions at the highest group the second the second to them was um mexican immigrants at 70 17 percent and then you talk about their bail bonds for haitians were higher um average bail bond for immigration was to, is 10,500 and for haitian immigrants the average was 16,170 um and then they also face greater risk of deport deportation so i just think you think about this how even things that you like how pervasive racism can really be and how even if in areas and things that you may not think about or you're not privy to like it's still operating there and if we don't like 
sometimes it can be exhausting I feel like because you feel like you have to be on all the time to analyze all these different things because it never stops it never ends but it, I guess it's also it's just about like figuring out how to um contain and try how, how to um take in all this information but it is very like kind of to Zach's point just frustrating to see like we know this is happening we allow this to happen more more than not we've created these systems and structures to make sure that this happens like we've weaponized the border in so many different ways in order to keep certain people out um and it's like a choice we choose not to do anything about it and I think that's like the most frustrating part when I say we I think I'm talking about like the people in power that have the can, can actually physically change this if they really wanted to at, in, in the moment um so I agree with you like you guys said and kind of you guys touched on colorism already, so I don't feel like we have to touch on that. But quickly, for like on the health justice perspective of this, how do we what what do we think the potential health effects could be for Haitians um, that have endured this dehumanization at the border? I mean, it's catastrophic, right? It's uh, you know, in certain cases, it's a life death scenario, um, and that's nothing to be taken lightly. You know, um, the country is of Haiti is in an absolutely terrible situation right now. Um, and we've seen this from other South American um, refugees, but you know, there are people who just can't go back to their country for one reason or another. Um, and, you know, they, they understand that coming to the US border, the Southern border of America is not safe. You know, people aren't stupid. You know what I mean? They have the internet, they read headlines. They know that this is a dangerous place to be and they choose to do it anyway. You know, I think a lot of the times, you know, the discussion is very dehumanizing in and of itself, which is why I'm glad at the beginning we brought up the terminology of like, you know, what is what and what does that mean? And what weight does that carry? Because a lot of times we just see it as numbers, you know, how many people are there? You know, how many people are we allowed to let in? Like, what's the cap? Blah, 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 blah. But like each person has a story and each person has, for the most part, felt like they're better off trying to cross this border despite all the hardships that come with that than being wherever they were, you know? And that's not something to be taken lightly. You know, they, they understand the risks and they're willing to put their lives and their well-beings on the line to try and enter this country. And it's really sad that, it doesn't seem like, you know, that level of dedication is respected. You know, it's, it feels so dehumanizing. It feels like these are people who are desperate enough to come to the situation because we don't have, you know, um, our policies figured out. We don't have a good system at the border and they're still willing to go through that for a chance to come to this country. And just to add to that, I think that, you know, that just that opportunity to survive is also a mindset about like that's what we have to do it's not just a mindset it's like your the land that that's then what's happening on there with it being a war zone so thinking about it mentally physically emotionally it's like you're trying to get away from that to protect yourself and your families but then there's also a new risk and now you're entering you're entering a new land a new zone a new culture to say, and there might be disassociation and dysphoria. So thinking about more of the psychological impacts of like when you travel, and I know when I've traveled to other countries, you will see yourself 
and the identity that you have in a new way because of how others perceive you in that culture. So for example, when I went to the Dominican Republic, I'm just gonna keep using that as examples. It's a great country to go to, but also like so many nuances. So like when I went to the Dominican Republic as a mixed person, it was the first time I felt culturally that I, I was home, that I could be accepted, that there was such a multitude of diverse colors of Latinx, of Hispanic, of of um, like so many different people and, and colors and it was beautiful. But at the same time, I could understand colorism better on a global scale and I could understand how it imp impacts in the culture. So what I say is that black looks different. It feels different in other cultures. So imagining and trying to empathetically put myself in, in their shoes, going from their culture, their, their understanding of blackness, of identity, and then moving to another country, which has like, they might not even understand like what's, you know, what's going on in our country with, like, with racism and everything because there's this cultural competency gap. There's this cultural comprehension. How do you understand your own identity in your own culture versus other cultures? And then trying to make sense of it all. Psychologically, emotionally, socially, that's a lot. And then that can take a physical toll, that weathering. It's just, it's a lot to process at once. And I think people aren't talking about it as much because we, we haven't figured it out yet here. I, and by we, I mean, we, the people of America are struggling. And so in a sense, we can kind of bond over kind of the struggle of trying to understand the complexities and identity because no one's like, we're still figuring it out together. We're all drowning with our hair on fire saying, it's fine, it's fine, everyone. Let's show up to work every day and like try to get through this. But I think that that's a big thing that that can, maybe we can do to support immigrants or or others is really listen to understand one another's stories and how we can help each other comprehend life and and get through it a bit easier hopefully Okay, so thank you, Cassie. I think we're gonna go to the next section, but just like a quick point on that to lead in. I think like Cassie, you were touching on it and Zachy touched on it too, like the precarity of like being a migrant and like the stressors and the different like situation, like all that is embodied stress and um, weathering that happens to the body can have epigenetic changes in the body that could pass on to your children and trauma, all the things that you would need to unpack because of like all these different tr things that you went to of no fault of your own, truly. Like it's because of these systems and structures that say you cannot come here. So we're gonna make it extensively hard for you to come here. You know what? No, we're gonna dehumanize you to the point that you feel like you cannot come. And I think this really plays well into like our next topic um, of this, our next subtopic, which is optics, right? and how immigration and immigration policy in large part is really like all it does is play into like who we want to be here, but also like when we care about immigration, what like what it looks like. We, do, we don't care if you're denying people and we can't see it, but when we see like mass people trying to come and you are just like being truly inhumane, it, it hits home in a different way. So I think, um, so that's what we're gonna talk about. So first, American America, has had a long history in hiding the violence of their immigration policies to provide the immediate optics of civility. They make it seem like they're doing, like, oh, we're not like dehumanizing people. This is not like a dehumanizing process, a violent process. You know, they just can't come, right? Like, oh, they're just like, like you, the um, words that a lot of people like to, some people like to use is that they're illegal. Like, how can a human ever be illegal? But that's a different, different, um, whole different topic for a different day. But however, no matter how you obscure, obscure these tactics, the harm um, that is induced it will always be violent. So an anthropologist named 
Jason Dillon wrote an ethnography called The Land of Open, Open Graves, which was very compelling, intriguing, and thoughtful narrative that illuminates the inhumane and structurally violent experience of being a desert migrant between the US and Mexico border. Um, in his ethnography, he carefully details how the Sahoran Desert was weaponized via the prevention through deterrence policy. So this policy came into effect because of a border patrol officer uh, that was at the Mexico border. Um, would realize that migrants would like sit at like the, I think it's the, um, the Rio Grande. And then when a certain time comes, they would just like rush the border and they, they would outnumber the border patrol. So they wouldn't be able to like reprimand them. And it looked like the border patrol had no control over the border, hence the optics. So what they chose to do instead was they hyper-militarized the border, right? So that nobody could come through. And it forced them the only way that migrants could be able to try to migrate through without in, getting in contact with Border Patrol is going through the Saharan Desert, which is um, in and of itself, is just a, a very, um, we talk about the environment, it's a very violent place. It's very hot. There's no, there's no like area for it to get food, water, the essentials to living life. Um, so to think like trekking the Saharan Desert, or Sahara Desert um, is just incomprehensible. But the reason why it was a good, prevention through deterrence is because you lose the optics of like all these people just like charging charging a city and you not being able to control it and you put it in a place where nobody can see it but there's people that you, you walk through the desert just dead bodies just laying there decomposing you just find remains and remains of people that um, never were able, able to make it to america right but it's the ways in which we we choose to hide our violence um and to 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 make it seem like we're this civil country that we're, oh, we're just not alive, but no, we we want to make it so that we don't have to worry about them. But we also want to make it so that if you come here, that's your fault. So I say that to say weaponizing like the desert when there was fourteen thousand Haitian migrants that were under this bridge, right? And the next day after you saw like all the videos were circling of, of the um the border patrol whipping the Haitian migrants, the next two days all those Haitian migrants were gone. How do you get rid of that many people that quickly? How does that happen? And where do these people go? And when we talk about leaving things to the courts and the systems and stuff, we already realize that like all these systems are inherently racist. So leaving it to the courts is not a good idea. Specifically, I took this migration course last year and it talked about how um, when you're seeking asylum, you have to like go in front of the courts and present your case and they have the, the power to say if, if you're, your case is valid or not. And a lot of times it ends up because these people hear so many cases that, you know, the most worst, horrible sounding case sometimes won't get, get accepted because they need, they, it starts to begin to become a process of you performing pain, performing, um, performing like this destruction and enable to enable you to be able to, um, actually get asylum. So leaving to the courts is not necessarily a catch-all or a good resolution to this problem. Um, so I say all that to say, why, um, how does America play a part in this situation? Why is the U.S. government more worried about getting rid of Haitian refugees than helping them, helping solve the root causes that made them immigrate in the first place? Um, and what ends does it serve for them not to address these root causes? And then, yeah, and then we have like one more section, like one more question after that. But why does the US government, why is the US government more worried about getting rid of Haitian migrants than actually solving the root causes that brought them here in the first um, place? 
I think my, you know, quick and maybe too simple of an answer is because it's easier. Um, it takes less um, reflection as a country. Um, it's like you said, it's, it's violence by inaction as opposed to direct visual violence, you know, um, redirecting people to a deadly area um, and funneling them to their deaths isn't as, you know, uh, sensational as just, you know, straight up whipping them off your ground. Um, and it's something that America has become very good at. Um, I think we mentioned it before when we were talking about, you know, the role the CIA plays in different countries or has in the past and probably continues to do so. We only know about the past, but I'm assuming they haven't stopped, you know, where you send um, operatives into a different country instead of an army, you know, and you destabilize from the inside out and then you leave and that country falls completely apart. And it looks like, you know, to a regular everyday observer, like you had no part in it whatsoever. Um, and, you know, that that kind of theme carries along to the border. Um, you know, if they can do it quietly and they can do it without making much noise, they're going to do it because that's the easiest way for them to handle it instead of, you know, essentially re-establishing their entire system because the way the system is built up has reinforced all of this, you know, over time. And it would take a lot more effort and retrospection for them to, you know, tear it all down and make a better system than to not just continue what they're doing. Yeah, I agree. And how I view it, it's like they just want to keep their people in power. It's simple. They just want to keep, um, you know, the government and these people in power, right? And like they like they keep on dehumanizing these Haitian immigrants, right? <clears throat> and I'm sure I'm trying to pull up the thing. So and they keep on trying to get rid of these Haitian refugees and like breaking them down, right? Just to like, you know, keep this, you know, system or what is it? Um, keeping mm, this hypocritical system going, right? And it's just, it's sad, but they just want to, keep these people in power and keep those people away. That's just how I view it, so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I kind of like to piggyback off of everyone's points. It's just kind of, I feel like the, 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 the Haitian migrants might be seeking refuge here because people still have a notion of the American dream. When I went to go teach abroad in many countries, kids around the world from many different continents said, my dream is to be American. That's their dream is to be an American. And I don't know what that means or how that means, but I think that it it's like a new dream revitalized and the, that the United States kind of plays a role of either contributing to the narrative, not contributing to the narrative. And in this case, like Zach was saying, it's just, we go and disrupt and then cause a lot of these issues, but then we're like the first people to say, oh, you see that you're in trouble here. Like, you know, and then they start to play like this whole monopoly with countries. Cause then if you look at the economies of most of uh, Central and Southern America and the islands there, the United States has huge stakes there, not just with resources, but within like everything there. It's really sad. Cause like when I look at this stuff, I remember some of the politicians saying, oh, always treat the Americans right. Cause they're the ones keeping us alive. And it's like, well, it's 
So it's just kind of seeing America, it tries to play a big role. It's like, it's like where they're playing this kind of crazy game of among us and they're just getting away with everything and they're still winning and getting at the top and getting the crown and being able to keep the money. And so right. I think that a good solution would be to, you know, try i think people are trying to be scapegoats and not fix the system itself because it's too hard to fix but we need to start strategizing solutions for it i think it's interesting you bring up that cassie the fact that you know younger foreign people still want to come to america and you know once again my parents are both immigrants as well and when they immigrated here they came for better opportunities more life you know opportunities jobs all that good stuff um, but I think nowadays, you know, while it still might be that in certain cases, I know that for a fact, one of the biggest exports in America is our culture. Um, our culture is seen all around the world. Um, you know, it's, it's popularized, it's sensationalized, and it's something that despite, you know, we used to be a big manufacturer as well. And, you know, our factories have been closing for decades now, you know, like infrastructurally, we're falling apart, if you ask me. Um, but our culture output has been as steady as ever. And, you know, that glorification of American culture, um, it's a lot more powerful than I think some people recognize and give it credit for. Um, and that's something that keeps people wanting to come here, whether, you know, it's actually for the better or not. It's, it's still on the outside, a glossy, attractive place to be where, you know, we still have people in this country who can't feed themselves. You know what I mean? We, we have third world Esque places in our inner cities and you know people still want to come so I, th I think that you know might play a factor no i totally agree with everybody's statements and i think kind of going off of both, both of those points i think going back to like why does america not want to deal with root causes like like cassie said they have investment in making sure these people live in precarity so that they are able to sustain these systems so that they're able to get migrant workers so that they don't have to pay them. These companies can just like, at the end of the week, be like, oh, we're gonna call ICE and have all you guys deported so we don't have to pay you for your work. But we wanna keep you in this cycle so that we wanna keep your our foots on your neck so you can feel like you're in, able to slightly get, get ahead. But as soon as you start to become, have some stability, some kind of structure, we can take it away from you as soon as we want to because at the end of the day, we're a capitalist society and we want to be able to capitalize off of your labor, off of your work and off of your pain at the end of the day. And I think you guys bring another point really interesting too, talking about like how we have idealized this myth of, myth of like America being um, the greatest place on earth, the place of opportunity. When in reality, these opportunities are, are shaped and relegated to certain types of people. And yes, there are people that are able to break through and yes, we're trying to take down these systems and structures, but in large part, like we know that we've created a system that structurally divests and doesn't, enable equal access to those opportunities. And disproportionately black and brown immigrants are not gonna have the same access to those opportunities that white immigrants or even specifically white people that already are in America will have. And I think like the more we keep telling ourselves this lie that we're like the greatest country ever and choose not to work on to be idealize those goals and actually actualize those goals, like the more we're just gonna perpetuate the same violence that we've been perpetuating for like centuries at this point. So I, I totally agree. And to go to the last two questions um, of today's topic, so the process of asylum, the leave it to the courts mentality, 
we have to remember that bureaucracy is inherently racist. Um, why do we grant more dignity to borders than we do to humans? And then what does justice look like for Haitian refugees? How do we visualize justice for them? I think those are two very, very tough questions. Um, I, I think, you know, the first question about borders and why do we value them more than we seem to value humans at times, I think, comes down to the machine of the country that we're in. Um, America has become this monolith um, where its systems continue to do terrible things. This capitalist system, you know, driven by a profit motive more often than not. And, um, you know, as, as a whole, the country is going to value continuing the status quo um, because if it's threatened and if it feels like it's going to change, then, you know, its power and its ability to continue operating as it has is at risk. Um, and so, you know, it's built into the system itself that it takes a long time for things to change. You know, the Congress is set up in a way that it takes a long time if you want to pass um, really radical legislation. Um, it's, it's built to be slow. Um, and so it's going to continue to dehumanize people at the border because that's what we've been doing. And, you know, we have to keep fighting against those, you know, um, we have to keep protesting against the system and doing everything we can to make it heard that, you know, we want this to stop. Um, but that, that's a long journey. Um, and I don't think that's something that's going to come quickly, unfortunately. If you ask me, I'm sure people have more optimistic outlooks. But um, and then to the second point, what does uh, justice look like for Haitians and what actions can we take? Well, I mean, first and foremost, let, let more people in. <laughs> let more people in and let them explain themselves and make the process on being legally able to be here less difficult. You know, get rid of the jargon, you know, get rid of all the bureaucratic nonsense that keeps people at the border for years on end. Um, and just first and foremost, end the policy of physically abusing and accosting people who are literally running away from danger in their own country. Um, it's crazy that I have to say that, um, but it is, it is what it is. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's all I can do other than, you know, continue to advocate for these changes. And that's what, that's what I'm left with. So that's my, those are my closing statements, I suppose. Yeah, and just to piggyback off of that, it's just, I think that we grant more dignity to borders than to humans. And I hate to say this, but borders are more tangible than humans. We live in a world that we are digitally consumed in, we're consumed in social media and all these different things. And a border is a physical thing that you can go see and go touch and go build. And yes, we can do that with humans too, but we're, we're so disconnected with each other that that it's easier to give social power and physical power to a border because it's the, the border it's a wall it doesn't talk back it doesn't feel back it doesn't give you its opinion right so it's easier to not only like metaphorically and physically give it power but it's also just able to help maintain everything it's just easier out of sight out of mind or maybe within sight so now i don't have to worry anymore 
right? So I think that that's why we grant more dignity to, to that because there's this notion and this can be like traced way back or like even into ancient times as to why would you build a wall in the first place? And the response would be to protect yourself and those you love. And in a sense, some people might see that we're doing that, but at the same time, like I think that's changed over time. And so to provide justice and action, I think it's gonna, it's gonna be multifaceted. Part of it's gonna be listening to the needs of the people and, and um, also changing the system, like Zach said, but also kind of sharing our resources. There's almost like this competitive nature that I've seen that's been politicized and all sorts of stuff where it's like, oh, well, why would we share our resources with other people from other countries? And it's really sad to see that because we are a nation that are literally built on stolen land like the america as we know we're built on stolen land and like we're taking all the resources and yet we can't give it back so like i just i don't get it at sometimes but like at the same time it's just like i think that's a part of the action that we need to take is we need to be more willing to share our kindness and share our resources and that's going to be the biggest part whether it's getting people here legally or providing more equal opportunities because I feel like there aren't equal opportunities for people who are trying to seek asylum or immigrants who are coming here. So we need to start to pave the path for them and be a part of that change. So um, those are my kind of actions and concluding thoughts. Yeah, I think you and Zach said it perfectly. Like they build these walls to like some may say it's like they're scared of like whoever is entering or trying to enter their country um or like even war and just they just want to keep people out um <clears throat> but honestly like you said Cassie's like we need to give our like we like you said we are living on stolen land like we need to give our resources like if we're taking resources from them we should also share it with them give it back like simple as that right um in the justice justice of the of it all for like these Haitian refugees, like <clears throat> we need to create that common ground. Like we need to, they need to feel like it's acceptance. Like they need to feel okay. We need to, you know, create that kind of like community, like just to feel okay to share resources or come over, like, you know, cross the border. Like there should not be that, you know like stop sign right it shouldn't be like like you know that's you can't cross these cross paths right so I think that's what they need and um because like they're going through hell right now right so that's exactly what they need acceptance yeah like you guys made amazing points and I think just to build off of that and to be my closing thoughts I think that we think about like the economy of the border and like we have two borders we have the border like canada between us and then we have the border between us and mexico and just how how vastly different they are and how we apply and grant deservingness and dignity to those different areas like we we canada is an open border we can go back and forth pretty much between there but between the u.s border and mexico is hyper militarized and just thinking about like Cassie, what you said that the border is more tangible, it's become more tangible than humans itself. That was that hit home. I was like, oh my gosh, that was that was a word. And I think just thinking about how we have granted such power and such to something that is so arbitrary in nature is kind of just like 
like just crazy to me. And I think going to the last point, how we can visualize justice for Haitian refugees, I think there's a certain level of like justice that will never really be felt by the Haitian refugees that had to go through this dehumanizing experience. And that's something that we can never restore. But I think going back and thinking about how we can restabilize these countries that we've helped to destabilize, going back and funding programs and things like that, that they have already in those countries, instead of like exporting their greatest workers to, you know, us, Canada, and other like former imperialists and colonizers, um, and bringing that back to the country to, to restore them to their full fullest potential. I think that's um, definitely a way that we can enable some type of steps towards justice um, in that perspective. And to end the podcast, I'm going to end with our usual closing quote from the Honorable Thurgood Marshall, former Supreme Court Justice, and it says, I do not believe that the meaning of the Constitution was forever fixed at the Philadelphia Convention, nor do I find the wisdom, foresight, and the sense of justice exhibited by the framers particularly profound. To the contrary, the government they defies was defective, defective from the start, requiring several amendments, a civil war, and a momentous social transformation to attain the system of constitutional government and its respects for individual freedom and human rights we hold as fundamental today. When contemporary Americans cite the Constitution, they invoke a concept that was vastly different from what the framers barely begun to construct two centuries ago. And with that, I, with that, we should remember that systemic racism does not just manifest itself in the extreme insidious nature of police violence, but exists in a spectrum where it festers at the surface every day, stifling the ability for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to flourish in every aspect of life. Anti-racism and social justice work is a continuous act it requires us to learn and relearn our ways of being in the world and to question the world and question what is hegemonic to ensure we're not falling into the inherently violent status quo. It requires us to believe in, believe in and imagine a world more just than the one we live and do the work to achieve it. And with that, we can call it a wrap.